0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread.
1: Hey there, Food Junkies listeners, Molly here. Happy New Year. Clarissa, Vera, and me just wanted to be sure you knew how much we appreciate you. Thanks to you, we've reached 350,000 downloads, just in time to kick off our third season of the Food Junkies podcast. I can hardly believe it. Our next goal is 500,000 downloads, and Vera has promised to dance again. Can we do it? Just a quick announcement before we get to today's guest. Clarissa and I wanted to remind you that Sweet Sobriety is hosting a cravings workshop by Jennifer Bradley. This workshop addresses why we have cravings, how to tell the difference between physical and psychological cravings, and what can be done about them. In this workshop, you will learn the difference between cravings, hunger, and insulin spikes, the myths of willpower, how to name your cues, triggers, and temptation zones, about supplements and food substitutions that may be right for you, the difference between physical and psychological cravings how to build coping skills for immediate and future cravings. You'll also receive downloadable worksheets, a Wheel of Emotions, sugar names and substitutions, weekly journal prompts, daily practices you can do at home, four live one-hour weekly support meetings with replay. This is all for $50 US and will be Saturdays, 12 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. UK, starting January 7th, 2023. Okay, let's get to our guest. Brian Balmell is a registered psychotherapist in Canada who helps people who eat emotionally, binge eat or have food addiction, just want a normal relationship with food in their bodies, don't want one slip up to lead to an entire binge, purge or downfall. People who are constantly or obsessively thinking about their weight or food, maybe they've gained or lost hundreds of pounds in their lifetime, maybe they're any weight on the scale, whether in a thinner or heavier body. They may engage or think about binging, restriction, and purging. These people may be pre- or post-bariatric surgery or wonder why they jeopardize their health and life. So today, Vera and me find out Brian's personal and professional journey, what are eating disorders versus food addiction, and how he treats clients who have either or both, differences in working with men versus women, our signature question, and more.
2: Take it away, Vera. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman and I am your co-host today, along with Molly Painshaw. Today we are speaking with Brian Baumel. Brian Baumel is a registered psychotherapist who works at the leading edge of weight management using both the eating disorder and the food addiction models to help his patients regain a functional relationship with food, body and self-esteem. Okay, Brian, welcome.
3: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
2: All right, so let's let's get started here. We generally don't deal with people who work with weight management because that's mm. not our focus, but you kind of came into my radar because you were talking about using eating disorder model in the weight management, which is already quite I'm sure unique. And then later said that you adopted the food addiction model. So mm. that you kind of got onto our radar and we became interested in your work. So first of all, we always like to start with the personal. So how did you get into the whole business of both weight management, then eating disorder, and then food addiction? And tell us a little bit about your story.
3: Good question. So one thing I will say about weight management is I, um, I have my own history with, with weight um, and I'll get into that in, in a second. But when I started my practice in this area, I thought, what is a consumer? And I don't even like to use that that term per se. But you know, people consume healthcare services. I said, what is a consumer likely to type into their search engine if they want to deal with with this and wait? was the first thing that, that I thought of. So that in in part is how I got into, into weight management. So broadly, I classify people in my own system in, in three areas. Those who you know really have a, a fairly functional relationship with food, maybe an emotional eater, and just sort of need a push in the right direction. Then there are those with disordered eating and full-blown eating disorders, and I use that paradigm and then there are those with food addictions so broadly you know that that's how i got uh, the 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 term weight and then i can focus this in on my own experience
1: Mm -hmm.
3: because my own experience involved uh, exercise bulimia full-blown binge eating disorder and addictive experience with with food and at the time i was going through all this i thought i needed help with weight when in fact I really had exercise bulimia, binge eating, and you know, perhaps a predisposition to uh to to food addiction. So all the time I, I was going up and down and up and down, I thought it was a weight problem. And and so so that's how I, you know, that's how I really got into the area of weight was thinking about a consumer and then thinking about my own experience with that
2: okay great so I, I mean you told me about, personally that you'd lost up to about a hundred pounds and you've you've maintained that loss for how long
3: um, 10 years just 10 years and about five months and an odd okay. number of days it started August 15th 2012 was was the day I started to rein this all in.
2: So uh, I, I think that one of the benefits, because you see in the same way that we do, that there's sort of three categories, and we're especially interested in that muddle between eating disorder and food addiction. Before we get into all of that, which Molly, I hope you uh, will take over, just tell, tell us, uh, Brian, about, you mentioned you had a, a, an enlightening experience about food addiction. Can you tell us about that? Because I'm very curious yes. about what happened.
3: Yes, yes. So, I I said my start date in really managing weight, managing my relationship with food and body occurred in August 2012. And I was successful at doing that. And and it's worthwhile to talk a little bit about the mindset Mm -hmm. that got me there. We can talk about that later. But I was successful um, at managing that. And again, at In 2012, I didn't know my practice area would be going in this direction. My training as a therapist didn't involve anything regarding eating disorders, much less food addiction. So I tapered my consumption of sugar. And everyone has to be very different with that. I I absolutely recognize that, but that was working for me. But there was a gradual tapering and around three years later, um, I think it was November 1st, 2015, I had tapered it so much that I said the next logical step is to remove it altogether, like just not have it in in my house. Um, that was really the only source of it. So I did it and it was no problem for me. It could be problems for other people but I had manage my relationship with food and body in that way that on November 1st, all sugar stopped. Now, about six or seven weeks after that comes the holiday season. And my strategy for the last three years had generally been when I go to a holiday party or a festive occasion, I will eat what I want at at the party. There were times where acutely managing my weight maybe two or three times or half a dozen times. I resisted a little bit at those, but generally I ate what I wanted to. So that was my strategy going into the December 2015 holiday party. I go in. And I have a small chocolate holiday coin, which is about the size of a loony or a toonie um, in, in, in Canada. Those listening internationally, I'm sure you just put your thumb and middle finger together, that's roughly the index finger together. That's roughly the size of it, very small. And I had an experience that changed my life. All of a sudden, I, <laughs> my focus, like, like my, my actual eyesight shifted what was in front of me all of a sudden became blurred and what was in my background became in focus. And this is often an effect done in horror movies or, or suspense movies.
2: What an analogy.
3: Well, it, I, I remember it from Jaws and The Shining, at least. I, I think it's called fo- forced focus. I tried to look, look up a, a, a term for it. But that was the first thing that happened and that I noticed. And then it was must have candy, must have candy, must have candy. My brain was taken over uh-huh. by this. And I guess with the the change in perception, I focused on the shortest distance between me and the candy. And in between that was someone who uh, was using a walker or a mobility device <laughs> And I had visions of tackling this person, like literally, you know, getting down in a stance and just tackling this person to get to my candy. Now, I avoided that in part because when, when you train in therapy, you learn to really almost detach from your emotions and process them a bit differently. So I was able to just go, wow, this is a scary and interesting experience. So it lasted for about 20 minutes and then I sort of came to again and I was like, that is the scariest experience or one of the top ten scariest experiences of my life, and what I want to make this clear, I have had. I, I, I probably like many listeners, I have had tens of thousands of food cravings over my life. At that time, I was about, uh, I don't know, maybe um, late forties, early fifties. You think about how many cravings you have, especially if you're have a bad relationship with food. Tens of thousands. This was not the number one craving. This was on a completely different level than that was and then i started telling this story because i was giving uh, speeches about weight management and i uh, was getting involved in various groups and i'd be telling this to people and all the food addicts people who identified as food addicts would tap me on the shoulder and they'd say that's me every day right on yeah every single day that is is me and so it was that, that moment where i had the experience that food addiction is a real thing and i had to listen much more carefully to the um to the theory and to the validity of of food addiction but even now in my practice i i still tell that story to people i feel have a food addiction some of them break down and cry or or cry because i hear it. you're the only person who who gets it. Yes, that is what goes on for, for right. me. So that was my yeah. that was my experience with it. Changed my life forever.
2: Yeah, you know, Brian, I mean you really you really tell our story in that one illustration. And the other thing that you really illustrated nicely is how a craving just lasts 20 minutes and you were able to with the skills in place back off. But boy did you explain that well.
3: Thank you. Thank you that's exactly what it, and as i was telling that people are just listening to to me now i mean i'm not my my level of awareness in general is probably average in normal situations i'm not someone that's overly sensitive or overly aware so this it, it was just such an experience for 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 me i've never had anything like it before
4: yeah, so having had that experience and then realizing that now you're seeing these clients, I guess I really would love for you to kind of break down for us. Like, how do you determine the difference between this is emotional eating? This is eating disorder. This is food addiction. Like how do you help your clients to, and, and maybe you do this together, determine what you're actually working with?
3: Oh, so that is a fantastic question, Molly. And I, I can spend a lot of time. Um, I can spend a lot of time here and it's probably worthwhile to do. So what I do in my first session with people, almost the first minute of it is I will do a full detailed food history and it serves a number of purposes. Um, The first one is to sort of determine what's going on or which paradigm I will use. And the second one from a therapy relationship, most people, when they go to a provider, have not had the opportunity to spend an hour talking about their relationship with food, their relationship with body, their relationship with self-esteem. So it builds the relationship there. So it's two, it's, it's twofold now part of the reason it takes an hour if not even two or three is because the similarities between food addiction and eating disorders and perhaps binge in particular are what i call annoyingly similar so i have to spend that time really trying to understand what goes on so some of the um, and i'm open to, to hearing your input on this as well but some of the symptoms if you will that I consider common to both are things like constant thoughts about uh, about food, eating in secret, eating too fast, eating too much, dissociating while eating those are about five or six right there and then I I go a little bit deeper in into those you know the the, the dissociation, for example, tell me, can, can, do you know anything that goes on? Do you get a euphoria that, that happens when you become aware? What happens again for you that the, the association part? I tend to focus on quite a bit and then I will say, OK, let's say you've had this eating episode, binge, addictive, whatever. What happens the next morning when you wake up, do you think, is your first thought, I need to get my fix again? I need to get what I had last night. I need to get this. I need to get that. Or do you go through your normal routine as well? So those are some of the things I begin to look at. And I'm not giving you a particular answer to say, okay, if they fully dissociate and if they're euphoric and if they wake up the next morning thinking they need the food again, that's a food addiction because it's not or at least in my view, it isn't. But it begins to give me some clues around uh, around it. Other things, for example, assessing for volume addiction. Is it just sugar or, or um, processed food or a particular food? The example I use, if I put five pounds of broccoli down in front of you, will you eat it? Will you have you eaten food out of the garbage before? have you stolen your kids' Halloween candy because there's a lot of guilt involved in that kind of thing? Those are some other things that I look at. What was the onset of this um, as well and what was the relationship with food like with with your parents too? Some of the other questions I asked do you know anyone that's had an addiction, whether it be alcohol, food, gambling, sex, whatever is your relationship with food similar to that or have you had an addiction before? Is your relationship food with food similar to that? So those are some of the things that I begin to to look at.
4: Yeah. So when you're asking all of those questions, you know, I'm thinking about it both from like an eating disorder and a food addiction, right? Like through both of yeah. those lenses, you know, do you kind of see these as separate or do, are they a continuum? Like, do you see binge eating disorder just progressing into food addiction ever? Or do you see them really as two separate things?
3: I I, I treat them as two separate things. I, I've heard the theory or I've heard some rumblings that they may there may be a spectrum of it. It's not how how I do it, because under, you know, usually with eating disorders, there is an underlying uh, psychopathology, if you will, around the important the the overvaluation of uh, weight, body image. There there could be restriction in, in the past. There's a lot of psychopathology that underlies that. The other thing, too, and this to me is very telling uh, and this is my own, this is just my own view that people who have full full blown eating disorders full blown consider themselves a very bad person for what they do their eating their body image is the reflection of who they are if they were ever called in front of a court or if you believe when when you pass away and you're you're judged on stuff they would say the one thing I will be judged on is my um eating and my body type and so on and so forth
2: you know that i find that a really interesting distinction that i'd not thought about but boy does it seem true because i identify as a food addict and in my worst days although i didn't like my weight what i was much more focused on was how i ate and my shame around that Mm. i didn't like the weight but that wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been the line in the sand for me and there you are saying that is and i think you're right. We we call,
3: we we call it um there, there's a technical term for it egocentonic and egodystonic opinions of of one's self and it's almost like a computer virus when the bad thoughts get into your cpu it becomes exactly who who you think you are so a lot of food addicts Will go, yeah. I you know, the way I eat what I'm eating is extremely shameful to me. I don't like the way I look. I've tried all sorts of diets, but it may not be a hundred percent of who I am. And again, please be careful with that because you it's possible it's it's possible to have both combined together that's why i do such a detailed history of of all this but thank you for for verifying that it is one thing that i have found
2: So, you know, just sort of curious, Molly, I want you to continue on because I think it's so interesting. But let me just ask you a quick question. When the guy comes or the person comes in and says, look, I just want to lose weight. And there you are now getting them to sit through a whole hour of their food and their relationship and on and on. Do they ever balk at that and say, that's not what I'm here for. I don't want a therapist. I want a weight management coach.
3: Actually, yeah. So sometimes, 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 yes. And I'm happy to refer them. And a lot of times what I have found is people will say, you know what? This is more difficult than I thought. There is something really deep that is going on. Let's keep going. But if they do only want, you know, they have a normal relationship with food. They only want a food coach. I can do that. And we work the the agreement there. But I will tell people my, my regulations in Ontario are very specific. I have to assess, but I can't diagnose. So what I say is I am using the following paradigm to treat you based on my assessment. So I will always let people know what I'm doing with it. And yes, if those who want to lose weight want to go to a food uh, or, or a weight coach or a dietitian or personal trainer, use me, not use me, absolutely. That's fine. Yeah.
2: Thinking
4: about like eating disorders, food addiction, you know, do you believe that individuals can self-identify? as a food addict, you know, and then if in so, like, what does that open up the possibility that we could be self-diagnosing incorrectly? And then what do you do with that?
3: So I have had, uh, I've I've been thinking about this for the last uh, couple of hours. I have had some clients or or, or some patients who come in immediately, and I'm I'm actually going to quote one and, and keep it fairly anonymous he said i go to an all you eat all you can eat buffet and i know i am having a different relationship and a different reaction to food than all the other hundreds of people around around me i can tell it they may not know that i'm reacting that way but i can tell that i'm just putting food in my mouth nonstop it's robotic and i am i am on a complete high or a completely different level when that, when that is said, I'm like, okay, you know, a big check mark in, in the food addiction box. The one thing I'm careful of, when first of all, whenever if somebody self-diagnoses or comes and says I'm this or that, the first thing I will say is tell me more about that. What makes you think that? That's a typical therapist question to, to ask. But you know that's, that, that sort of different relationship with food is one thing I look for. But what I do a little psychoeducation around or where I'm a little careful or where things get a bit difficult is if someone says I have one Oreo and then wind up eating the whole box or wind up eating uh, one row or or whatever. What I may say to people is I may say, you know, let's use the example of alcohol for just a moment. And let's also realize, or let's make it a given that packaged food manufacturers are in the business of making money. They're going to make this as palatable as possible so that you can't eat just one. Now to go to drinking, you can have a drink and wind up having five or six in, in total when you didn't plan on it. And we all know That alcohol depresses our inhibitions, it impacts our judgment, and so on and so forth. You have five or six, but you are not an alcoholic because you wake up the next morning, you have a hangover, and you're like, I'm never doing that again. It's the same with with food. So I educate people around that and then say, where do you think you fall? Are you going to have Oreos the following day? Or is this a, a pattern that's been going on for years and years? Or is it once a week you have an Oreo and then have the whole Box of of them, so that's a, a little how I try and distinguish, or or when people self-diagnose. Yeah, yeah.
4: You, it sounds like you just really try to get curious with them and see, like, does that still land if we ask some of these different questions? You know, right. is it lighting up your brain like a Christmas tree, or is it something else that we're looking for? Again, because like you said, there's that psycho-emotional thing, you know, that really drives more of the eating disorder feeling to it. Though I would argue there is addiction within eating disorders, right? Okay. I mean, have you experienced that? And can you talk a little yes. bit about what that might look like?
3: Yeah, yeah. So it looks like someone who has an eating disorder, or it looks like someone who can have their their trigger foods, and then also have the sort of underlying psychodynamics, such as the preoccupation with weight. They may have done restrictive diets again. Oh, and by the way, this is another uh, assessment that I use if they've lost a significant amount of weight before and have regained it what caused the weight regain because sometimes i will luck out and hear people say you know what i just decided to abstain from sugar and then six months later i decided to have a a cube of sugar in my coffee and kaboom i was off to the races again, but uh, there could be restriction in the past There could be overvaluation. There could be purging. There could be purging as well. There there can be restriction for as long as they possibly can. And you get into, you know, you absolutely do get into both. And what I will say at that point, it's it's a judgment call on where to go first. But I would say, you know, you want to get the, the underlying psychodynamics, which are maybe more eating disorder related. Under control first, but you know, it it all depends.
4: Right. And Clarissa, who is also a co host of the podcast, who's not here today, she and I are clinicians in the field as well. And we love working at the intersection of eating disorder and food addiction. And um, we find that there is this, you know, addiction component within eating disorders as well, where there is, you know, a high when we restrict for as long as possible. There's Mm a high when we binge. There's a high when we purge, right? That there are these kind of, and Vera, I know you can speak a bit more to those chemical reactions as to what's happening. It's not, Always dopamine, but there are these kind of like neurotransmitters that are just lighting up. And yeah, do you want to talk just a bit about what's happening there, Vera?
2: Yeah, like one one of the things that um, I I find so interesting is that even in anorexia, where it's just it's just restricting, that that's that is really in my mind. Brian, I I believe you that there is a distinct entity that's separate, but that there are a lot of people who are either co-diagnosed or misdiagnosed, and they're truly food addicts. I remember even my own experience, just as an illustration, that um, I started off with restricting, and I got really hooked into the um, how much more weight can I lose because it's never enough. And you know, I, I had a, 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 a particular weight, and when I reached that weight, it was like that's actually not good enough. And it wasn't me looking in the mirror. I mean, I looked in the mirror, but it was more about the number. And I wanted to do more. And the high, like you said, Molly, the high of being hungry. This is actually something that um, I really worry about with uh, the intermittent fasting, like that, that overplay, because you you get an endorphin rush when you're hungry. Like it's a, it's a stress response, which then kicks in endorphins. And similarly with binging, which hurts hurts like when you're literally in in the throes of your sixth round of binging that night it hurts but there's an element of uh, uh just like a person cutting and slashing there's an element of self harm which leads to a endorphin response which is a bit of a high so there is actually Uh, in the eating disorder paradigm, the possibility of an addictive overlay or misdiagnosis?
3: Well, I will say a a number of things there. The phrase that I was first taught was that diets, and I know you weren't, you know, I, I don't want to use that term to describe what happened, but I'll just say, you know, diets lead to eating disorders. That is in my history as well. But what I think the broader phrase really is, Changes in your relationship with food can be very dangerous if not managed appropriately, because you can certainly get that high of, oh, my God, I'm I'm thin. I had it as well during during exercise uh, bulimia. It's incredible. It's never it's it's never enough. It's never enough for you. The high of restriction, the high of, uh, of of purging, um, purging what I found the high there. It it can be a psychological high. The other thing too is that people can feel very uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable after a binge. So it's just a, a physical release. And that physical, the, the, the perception of physical discomfort may be fueled by, you know, disordered thoughts as well. But yes, there, there is very much an addictive component to just changing one's relationship with food. And I will say this, one of the things that I am extremely careful about in my practice is when people start changing their relationship with food i will not let them get to that point and as a therapist you know you really shouldn't hear a therapist i will not let or or whatever but i i want to emphasize how important that is for for me because i believe I will be doing more harm than good if they lose the weight or change their relationship with food, and then I let them go. But they're only eating 800 calories a day, yeah. And they're thinking I can go, I can go further. Like I, I, you you gotta intervene.
2: Yeah. Now, what about this? This is a this is as you were talking. I thought about this. I've had at least two people come to me who um, were like they wanted to be part of the sugar challenge because they know they ate a little bit too much sugar, and uh, they they came to me and they said, you know what? Since I've been doing this restrict. Of sugar, my focus now on food is even more than ever. Like there, there was that concept of there was a change in their relationship to food, and they felt that that focus, that cessation of sugar, actually made them worse. So they both left and said, "I don't, I don't want to get worse." And that struck me as an interesting phenomenon. I don't usually have people saying that, but were they a normal eater? That stumbled in and, and actually we could have been doing more harm for those people because they were able to abstain on their own once in a while.
3: <laughs> it's why the assessment is so important and why we need to continually reevaluate it. I have switched my opinion of people and I tell them, I, I tell them that. I let them know that it's not perfect. I also let them know um, I'm glad to talk to both of you because we seem to be in agreement on the way I'm proceeding but I tell people this is my own home brew if if you will. There's no re- I mean there there is the Yale food addiction scale we're all very familiar with that one of your previous guests I think David Wiss, maybe last it, the show that aired last week had said that he has issues with it I have the same um, and, and it's a good it's a good tool don't don't get me wrong and it promotes um, food addiction, but more re- or yeah promotes food addiction, but more research is needed. More research is needed so we can be more efficient and accurate with our assessments and know what to do with our clients and patients.
4: And that brings up such a good point, right? And I think the the Yale Food Addiction Scale is this tool that will plunk people into a bucket of food addiction or not food addiction, but it doesn't do a very good job of screening for eating disorders. So we know somebody with active anorexia will absolutely score off the charts severe food addiction with the, with the Yale Food Addiction Scale. And then, so then we have the EDQ, But it doesn't take into consideration food addiction, right? So it just wants to plunk people into that bucket. And so, you know, again, like, this is where I love working at that intersection, maybe because I am such a curious individual, and I like investigating, and I like watching people find what works for them and kind of like buck the system. And so that's why I was wondering, you know... Can you kind of talk to us why it is so critical for us to know the difference between food addiction and eating disorder?
2: Sure, I mean- Yeah, why can't you just say whatever, let's just go ahead. Why why can't we do that? Okay,
3: I wanna hear your opinions on this as well, but it it is actually fairly, fairly simple and I boil it down into fairly simplistic components. If you want to add texture to what I'm about to say, feel free. In short, the standard eating disorder paradigm is to have people moderate their foods. In the addictive model, the standard way forward is to have people eliminate. If you cross connect those, it's a recipe for disaster. If you have a food addict moderate, you're just going to feed the the addiction, and if you have an eating disordered individual eliminate, you run the risk of numero whether whether it be restriction, compensatory binging later later on, you could trigger them into almost you know very dangerous anorexic or, or restrictive episode. None of us wants that at all in in our practice, so that's why it's important to get it right or to just say, you know what, let's experiment. After a couple of weeks, after a couple of months, try this, try that, and listen to people and hear what they have to, hear what they have to say and what they're doing for themselves. So to really be flexible in the approach. And that's why it's important to know the underlying psychodynamics. If someone really overvalues body image and so on and so forth, you have to really address that. And that may not involve food at all why are you doing what you're doing?
4: Exactly. I mean, I think you nailed it as far as like how Clarissa and I really show up and think about it, you know, working with clients every day is that this is where harm reduction really is the gold standard. If you're somebody who's working with people who show up and say, Hey, I've eating disorders," oh, Hey, I have food addiction because as you're illustrating Brian, and this is where I would love to see the research is like, what is the crossover? Mm-hmm. Like, so that we knew And And I know that there are some stats out there that shows a pretty high correlation between binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa, yeah. very high with food addiction, right? And
2: so... Can you define harm reduction in the context of what you're speaking? You're saying that you're using harm reduction. How so in this context?
4: Yeah. So in this context, so, you know, the caveat is always, right, what is the ultimate harm reduction? Zero, right? Zero harm would be the ultimate place to be. So it would be abstinence from either those foods that are lighting up your brain like a Christmas tree and causing you problems for the behaviors, whether it be binging, purging, you know, exercise, bulimia, whatever it might be, you know, but harm reduction says I show up and meet the client exactly where they are. And I figure out what are their goals and how do those align with, you know, gold standard treatment practices, which as you know, everybody here in the room knows that, you know, we don't have that just yet for food addiction. We're working on it but we don't have it yet. So what is the gold standard for other substances of abuse, for other process addiction? Mm-hmm. And how can those things apply to when to this person that's in front of me? Like, what is the tool that I might want to talk to this person about? So harm reduction says, hey, I meet you where you're at. And like Brian was saying, like, maybe this is the person that if I ask them to moderate their sugar intake, it just spins out of control because maybe they truly are, you know, addicted to the pastries or whatever it might be. But maybe I ask somebody to refrain from the pastries and that just in you know exacerbates their eating disorder because they refrain 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 and then it's just binge and we can't get them to stop now somebody could show up and say that's food addiction because that looks a lot like food addiction but again there's something deeper going on there it's not the food substance that's lighting up their brain like a christmas tree it's more of the messaging and the internalization of what it okay. is that's happening that's
2: driving so they're, that they're not going to be some of the people that we see in the facebook group who say well it's been a month and i feel fabulous It's been a month that I've been off sugar and I, boy, I just feel so good. That's not the person you're talking about.
4: No, no. So the, so the, yeah, the person we're talking about is somewhere in the middle, right? Where they are an abstainer for some things and moderators for others. others. Right. Right? That we have to leave room for that gray. Yeah.
3: I've had clients like, um, like that I'll speak generally. There are some people who are addicted to fast food or, or soda in particular. And once they abstain from that, you know, they, they can moderate other areas. I've seen that many times before. And in terms of weight reduction, if you want to get into to that, I don't know if, if we want to go down this road or not, but it puts them in good stead for the bariatric surgery process, if they can change the relationship, the addictive relationship with food prior to the surgery process. And the, the surgery process can help further moderate or if they understand what's addictive and what, and what they need to, to moderate.
4: So in that, you know, thinking about that, then, you know, do you work with clients where you guys talk about abstinence is the best approach for that person? Does that ever occur?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I I do for, I'm just running through my roster for a number of them. And it's just a matter of trying to figure out their, their trigger foods and then having them abstain. From them. Absolutely. There are some where I say abstinence is what you have to do, or it's something that we work towards. It's something that I need you to watch for. It's something let's try it for two weeks, then go back on and see, see what happens. Yes, there are some for whom abstinence um is is fundamentally it, and in other cases it's abstinence from some things, moderation with others, or you know just once you repair that relationship with food that may be a success. you know they may say you know what I'm happy, I'm happy, I don't need to. Change my weight or everything, or anything like that. I'm I'm good where I am.
2: Molly, can I um, ask a question that's outside of the eating disorder because we might want to come back to that. But it's something that I, I keep it keeps coming in my mind. Am I right in understanding because I know you through Tony Vasello who works mainly with uh, men and and their partners, that you have a probably a higher percentage of men clients than I might see. And so enough anyway. Can you give a, a description of what some of the gender Addict, like the addic- like any any dynamic with either addictive foods or how you would approach them.
3: You know, um, I do probably see a higher proportion of of men. That's that's for sure. I would say if we're just focusing on food addiction, the shame that men have around the food addiction appears to be greater than women. Just the the, the shame around the uh the eating that is uncontrollable for for them but i really do have to 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 say this and, and you know this is maybe another podcast or maybe even a different podcast entirely from from where we are the pressure on women to look a certain way is un freaking believable it's not my own personal opinion but as a therapist i hear it all the time and what happens if I lose weight? And what what what's what are my relationships going to be like? I hear it all the time. I don't hear it from from men in quite the same way. It is an incredible dynamic. I know it's not necessarily a food addiction um issue, the way men and the the, the guilt seems to be there but boy is, is it an issue in general
2: can you can you give an illustration of what you mean when you say men have a lot more shame than women around their eating like what give me an illustration because i i'm not a man i i i'm like wow really i thought women did so enlighten me here
3: i think i think with food I, I think with food addiction yes there is this sense that i should be in control i should be able to man you know i'm in control of my emotions i am I am a, a male. And in fact, I secretly I am not, and and the guilt around that can be very, very, very significant because men want. Generally speaking, men are rational human beings, not given to to emotion, calculating, upright, if if you will. So the shame there tends to be magnified a little bit as a result. I would I would say. Even needing food to cope. Why do I need this to to? Um, why do I need this to cope? I hear more a little bit more from men than than women. These are really finer points. I would suspect that if you did a survey hmm. around this, you I, I don't know the statistical differences that would exist in what I'm saying. But it,
2: it, might that explain why men don't come? Like we have an abundance of women seeking help, but not so many men. Is that maybe why the, the shame of that and
3: I think in part the shame, yes, I think in part I can handle this on my own. I don't need a Facebook group for um for God forbid a, a therapist. For, yeah. <laughs> for this. And you know, I, I can do this on my own. And again, I think the you know, you you, you could I, I haven't viewed your Facebook I recommend your Facebook group. I haven't viewed it recently in a lot of detail. But again, I wonder how many of, of the, the participants are driven in part by appearance around that. Now, appearance is is a factor. Let's, let's not say that it isn't, but we're talking about differences between males and females. Are, are What percentage are overvaluing the appearance aspect?
4: Yeah. I wonder too, with the men, you know, I think that there's a lot of the way that men groups, and again, now I'm painting in broad brush strokes, strokes, like I'm talking in generalization and like in these kind of like stereotypical gender groups right i think in my experience being around you know initially that was my that was my field as i worked with men in corrections in other substance use disorders right um in violent relationships that kind of thing and so to be now in food addiction and eating disorders that intersection and being with mostly women it is really interesting to me but i think when it comes to the food for me my experience has been men have a different way of communicating with each other, right? So they'll give each other a hard time. They'll, you know, razz each other, or they'll make jokes about it. Like how many tacos can I right? Like they, (laughs) they really show up in a different way. Meanwhile, on, on the inside, I think it is painful, but they're more likely to kind of go to the more, like in my experience, it's like they go like I see it happen, right. They show up at the MMA gyms or the local gym and I'm going to take on boxing and I'm going to take on weightlifting and I'm going to take on these things. Right. And they like really kind of throw out, you know, they, it's like, I'm going to get my nutrition dialed in and it's going to be this very specific way. Um, meanwhile, never really addressing that underlying emotional issue, you know, biological chemical dependency issue, you know, whatever it might be. But I do think that because of that, like, um, like you were saying, Brian, like almost like that stoicism or that like upstanding, whatever, right. Like men can really just dig in, in my experience and just like ignore the pain and just like push on that pedal and just go, right. Like I'm just Mm going to lift as heavy as I can lift. I'm just going to run as far as i can run whatever it is and they can really shut that down for so, whatever
2: reason so brian how do, what, what what kind of treatment like what, do you have a different approach then as a result between for, that, for uh, yeah i guess for, gender. Men and,
3: for for men and women it, it i, I I'm the, focus yeah. more more on the appearance aspect of things And what I tell women is, and and again, please jump in. It's even hard for me to say this. It's too bad we're not on video because my face has changed entirely (laughs) when I say. Unfortunately, there is some truth to what you're saying, and it it pains—I actually say—pains me as a male to to even even say that there is some truth because I don't want to. I don't want to perpetuate. But it's something that we have to work on navigating together. And what I encourage first and foremost is pride in who you are as as a person, more than more than anything else. And then, oftentimes, people will say, "But my pride and appearance are so they're they're so related." Or do I have to get pride before I get appearance, or so on, and and so forth? And then I turn just to inhabiting one's body what's it like to be directly in in your body stand up be proud now and that's hard very hard for people to do i i will tell you one of my own experiences that may be worth worthwhile so when i started changing my relationship with with my Body about five or six months in, I, I hadn't, you know, I lost weight at one to two pounds a week. Was not crazy in any way. So I hadn't, you know, lost a lot of weight. Hadn't really changed my relationship. But I'm in, in, in with with food, but I'm in the the gym doing bicep curls. And for me, just for me, I get an endorphin rush from doing a resistance training. So I'm in there doing these bicep curls and I get this endorphin rush as I'm doing them. And I realize that as I'm doing this, this endorphin rush is completely independent of my weight. I could walk into this gym at one hundred and fifty pounds and do this or I can walk in at three hundred and fifty pounds. It does not make a difference to me. This feeling that that I'm going from that moment on. I inhabited my body and I actually said, I do not care if I lose another pound or not, because this is the feeling that I want. This is it. It, it was so, it was so powerful to me. And sometimes people will ask me, they'll say, okay, well, why didn't you stop your weight? Loss? You know, they, I'll say, you know what, because that allowed me to go a little bit further and just say, what, what more can I do here? Because the underlying thought was, if I fail at doing something else, I'm going to return to a place that I like.
4: So profound, you know, to have that experience. And it's almost like so freeing, right? Because once you say, it doesn't matter if I have, if I lose another pound, this is the thing that I want. This is the feeling that I want. You start doing things that get you closer to that. And it's amazing. Like that's recovery, right? Because then the rest of it follows along. Absolutely, You're you're paying attention to like the important piece, right? There was a, there was, I always had these clients that would say, you know, blood alcohol content or, you know, sobriety is a blood alcohol content and recovery is a spiritual Mm. blood, you know, blood content Mm. kind of deal. And that, you know, that experience sounds very spiritual in that aspect. And like, just when we can get to that place, when we embody, when we come back into ourselves and go, yeah, this is it, then we can move forward. That's the freedom.
2: That's,
3: I honestly, it was so bloody profound for me and that's where we want to get to with people i can stand up and be proud that i am treating myself in a way that just makes me feel good it helps it helps with depression it helps with sleeping it gives me an endorphin rush this is what i am here for and that is that is it the focus was right off of weight and i will say this it just happened to me. Now, at that time, I had a, I had gone through my therapist training. I was a therapist and we sort of know that therapy kind of works. You know, we have to hopefully what we do is shuffle the deck correctly in people so that they're able to experience these things when they happen. But it's impossible, or very, very difficult, for a therapist to push and say, you know, we, for these kind of enlightenment to happen. And say, the next time you go to the gym, notice, do you get that? Yeah, I do get that. But for for this enlightened response to have happened, it it, it is almost a random event where the therapist just really has to try and keep shuffling the deck over and over again.
4: Yeah. Keep planting the seed and keep asking, like, what do you notice? And like allowing ourselves into it. Because again, folks, like it doesn't matter if this is eating disorder or food addiction, we are seeking relief or we're seeking that disconnection. Honestly, like it sounds really counterintuitive, but we are, I mean, the eating disorder and the food addiction are disconnection. And we're actually seeking that from our emotions, from our thoughts, from something inside of us that just does not feel right. And so this process that Brian is talking about is like coming back into and not just noticing that experience, but like connecting it back together and like coming back to our higher self for sure. So Brian, I feel like you're right. We could have a whole nother episode. We, we could go on for another hour. Unfortunately, we just don't have that time. So we're going to, um, so I would love to know what's next for you
2: say can we find oh, out yeah. about the resistance um brian in the work that you've done uh because you're you know come from the weight management field and then incorporated eating disorder have you had any uh, resistance from other colleagues or are you yeah. kind of working on your own there
3: yeah no so the resi- so the resistance is from let's say other psychological providers around yeah. the notion of, of food addiction so the answer the answer to that is unfortunately yes i've had about five or six that I've counted one as recently as um as, uh, as as the fall of I, I guess 2022 and what, what I often hear is things like abstinence causes a re causes an addictive like rebound in people. And here's what I say to to that. There are many providers who who work in in obesity or or weight uh, or or food addiction. You've got physicians, um, you've got occupational therapists, um, uh, physiotherapists, nurses, et cetera, et cetera. For those that are in the psychological realm, like psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, and those professions that practice therapy, here's what I say a therapist's primary job is to listen better to the client and perhaps other people have in their life. If you do nothing else as a therapist, if you just listen better or differently to whatever they're talking about, trauma, problems with their marriage, problems with work, whatever, if you just listen, you're doing about two thirds of your job right there. So what I want to tell people whose job it is to listen is that if you listen to how some people describe their relationship with food, it does not fit squarely into the food or sorry, into the eating disorder paradigm. It doesn't. When you listen that carefully, like my client who said, I know I'm having a reaction that is different than everyone around me. In the restaurant, I know I am getting so high on this stuff that could, I mean, you know, maybe it could be, but, you know, really, if you listen very carefully and if you use empathetic listening and transference and counter transference to understand the emotionality behind, behind yeah. it.
2: Well, well said. Well said, Brian. Molly. Yeah.
3: So that's what I say. If you if you oh. listen carefully, yeah. some of this is not going to be explained by eating disorders alone.
2: So I interrupted Molly. We want to close up that the, we want to still get some a little bit more out of you. Um, what is next for you, Brian? So my my practice is full. Thank, thank God, which is a good thing. So what what is next?
3: Is looking at at expanding and and growing it. So in the new year, I'm looking at bringing on a couple of other therapists who, who practice in the food addiction paradigm, who have lived experience. Because I have lived experience with uh, with with all of with all of this, so building out to a group, uh, building out to a group practice, also offering some group courses. You know, maybe you can save time by educating people the difference between eating disorders, food addiction, and or, or how they're related before they see a therapist. So just having people understand that knowledge. Some courses around guilt and shame around eating. And then possibly if I've started looking at it writing writing a book which is really daunting so that is what's what's next for um for me
4: that's amazing well before you go we have a signature question Mm -hmm. for all of our guests so if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about eating disorders um emotional eating volume addiction food addiction what would it be
3: i think um it would have to be around watch your self-esteem. I had very low self-esteem for a long time and didn't know it, you know, because you can overcompensate. You can be excellent in some areas and think that you overcompensate, you know, and think that uh, that you're doing really well. And so just watch your your self-esteem, which I now define as not letting myself get into bad situations in any part of my life or not. say, you know, I'm going to achieve at work and I can let my health slide. No, I can't. Like when I say I'm I'm thinking of writing a book and thinking of expanding my practice, my primary goal is my health and my relationship with food and my relationship with, with, uh, with my son and my family. I've asked my son, I said, should I expand my practice? What do you think? so not getting into in into trouble in, into trouble there. So watch your self esteem is what I would say.
2: Right on. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much for being part of this. You spoke very eloquently about some of the muddle between eating disorder and food addiction. And uh, thank you. Yes, thank you're, you.
3: You're, you're welcome. You've helped in, in your question and you helped separate the muddle, which is what I think it, it's not so much separating the muddle, but how all of this can work together okay. in a methodical way that serves all of our our clients and patients as best as possible.
4: Absolutely.
0: Thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, recovery from food addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, sugar-free for life support group. I'm sweet enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.